you got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Only this week, I'm not answering any questions at all. We're talking with my dear friend, William Matthews, about art and advocacy and how to make a real difference in the world. So, what do you say? Let's get it started. Well, I am like unreasonably excited because for the first time ever on Ask Science Mike, we have one of my best friends in the entire world, William Matthews on. <laughs> Dude, thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for asking me. I mean, this, this podcast is kind of legendary, so I was really surprised when you asked me. I was like, wait, what? I'm going to be on Ask Science Mike? Is this Ask William Matthews? Like, what it is. is I don't understand. It is. This is me asking William Matthews about um, life, man. I, you know, yeah. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump right into it. Actually, no, a life update first on me, because um, I don't want too much time to pass. I still don't really know how to art- articulate this, um, but uh, I've had a rough, rough year with my family, and mm-hmm. William knows all about this. Mm-hmm. If you guys think you know what's going on, uh, William. William definitely knows what's going on in my life. Um, we've had some significant challenges uh, with healthcare and my family. I've had some issues that were expensive, got through them. Then a family member whose story is not mine to tell faced a life-threatening disorder. And uh, that treatment was very expensive and is ongoing. And then I went to the hospital with chest pains Um and was diagnosed with a particular type of heart disease called pericarditis, which I am treating and is going well, but sent such a massive hospital bill that there was no way to pay for the ongoing care that my family needs, pay the debt we've built up providing care for me and my family, and handle these new hospital bills. Um, And, you know, um, Hillary and... Uh, Michael Hillary McBride, Liturgist Podcast, Michael Gunger, Liturgist Podcast, and my friend Caroline Lee uh, had all said they wanted to help and do a GoFundMe, and I had pushed that off as long as I could because if there's anything still in me of white supremacy and the patriarchy, it is that I am self-sufficient and that I should not need the help of others. So confronting the idea of a GoFundMe it made me feel, one, like I was asking for support from people who already support me. There are literally thousands of patrons for Ask Science Mike and the mm. Liturgist Podcast. And that I had failed at a, as a husband and a father. Yeah. And because Hillary is uh, very polite and kind, she would, she would defer temporarily on me pushing back. And... Um, Michael basically said he'll never agree to this. So let's just launch it on his birthday. Yeah, that's what, that's what was amazing. Because I was like, I don't know why they even asked you. But because I'm very much like, I, I'm not a good fundraiser in that way. What is that? Oh. Yeah, I'm not a good fundraiser in that way. Like, I, I would have asked you and then you said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> I can't make somebody. It's very like, I mean, it's an Oprah principle. You know, you can't force anyone to do something they don't want to do. <laughs> so, but I, I am, I love that they pushed past your uh, barriers and your boundaries there to create an opportunity for people just to show you how much they love you. Mm. I think that was what it was about. It, it does not speak to your inability to provide or your masculinity to be able to receive support when you need it. Mm. It sucks to me. And you, you would agree with this. It sucks to me that we live in a situation where we have to run a GoFundMe to help yes. pay for somebody's healthcare situation. I know so many of us have given to GoFundMe's uh, for people's medical needs just in the last five years because of how terrible our system is. So that's not representative of you, on you to me or uh, your drive and your work ethic and your ability to like i said to provide for a family it just mm. is about love it's about mm. people showing love to you and people expressing through monetary uh, means like to show that love to you and mm. i'm glad that that they did it was amazing i mean to give you some idea of what my headspace was like june 27th i woke up checked our bank balance realized it was not not enough money in the account to pay our rent mm. and would not be enough money in our account to pay our rent by the time rent was due so I kind of thought, well, this is it. This is the end of the road. It's time to miss rent, start the eviction process. <laughs> Gonna have a lot to explain to my family and my children. And um, wow! And then Hillary texted me and said, like, what was the name of your heart condition? So I told her. And then uh, really late in the day, Hillary and Michael texted me and Jenny's heads up your GoFundMe launches tomorrow. And, uh, I didn't have rent money. Mm. So I didn't protest. And I just want to say to all of you who will raise $50,000 in 20, 30 something hours. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you. Uh, I'll never be able to, tell you what it means to me and to my family. There will never be words that are sufficient. Um, but for a long time, you've enabled my work with your generosity. But in this case, you didn't just enable the work. You uh, rescued my family. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll... I changed my Facebook profile picture to... Uh, the scene and it's a wonderful life where the community like raises the money <laughs> to cover uh, the problem with the savings and loan. Um, and becoming like a podcaster and an author has really been like a financial disaster for my family compared to my previous career in advertising. But as I evaluate the relational impact of this phase of my life, I realized I, I am in fact the richest man in town. Hmm. Um, thank you, thank you all. Um, but enough about me. It feels weird to go into that on an episode about William. I just couldn't, oh, no. I couldn't I'm wait glad. anymore. I couldn't wait anymore. Cause what I, I really want to talk about every time I read a bio of you, by the way, do you know how popular you are, William? Relative. You're a popular dude. I was, as I do as a hobby, screwing around on Google Trends recently. Mm -hmm. A lot of people look for you on Google. They do? Yeah. Like a lot, a lot. What does that mean? It means how often people open Google.com and type William Matthews is very frequently. 
Wow. I don't know what they're finding, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, your website, your tour schedule, a lot of your uh, Bethel music yeah. shows up on our search for your name. Uh, a lot of YouTube clips. Oh, yeah. I forget about that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually do actually forget that they're... And it's funny because what's on YouTube now is not always... Or there was other stuff on YouTube a lot got taken down. Um, but that's what helped popularize my music was YouTube. I mean, there, there was a whole farm industry of people taking video clips of me singing at a church and throwing them on YouTube and they were getting millions and millions and millions of views. There's still a Mm -hmm. few left, but a lot of them have been deleted. But, uh, yeah, I think people are still probably searching for that. Yeah. Well, you're at this like nexus of identities and experiences. You have like this, this, I'd call it maybe prior work. Yeah, uh, that was more in the charismatic movement, mm-hmm. and then you have your your contemporary work that is in justice and intersectional spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that phrase, intersectional spirituality. Yeah, it's you. Thank you. <laughs> and every time I read a bio about you online, and I've read a lot because I end up having to like write bios about you for our website or for episodes. Mm-hmm. Um. You have a lot of bios. There's a lot in them. But one thing that always seems to come up is art or artist and advocacy and advocate. And I got so fascinated with those two things living and balanced together. So I'm curious. I guess I'm curious about your journey into becoming an artist and becoming an advocate and what that sequence was like. And where does that begin? Is that like when you're four? Is it when you're 14? What did that look like? Well, I guess I'll start a little bit with my deconstruction and maybe move backwards, actually. Okay, great. Um, So as you mentioned, I was a popular charismatic worship leader, traveled the world, or as they say in charismatic land, the nations. I went Mm. to the nations. (laughs) (laughs) Lord, send me, I will go. Um, I went to the nations and I wrote songs and they were put on albums and they just boomeranged across the world and I was identified as a worship leader Hmm. William Matthews worship leader and it's funny because I pursued that as a career option I said you know I want to be a worship leader. I love music and I love God and spirituality so let me put myself in uh, churches and ministries that have like burgeoning worship movements and so I spent a time as an intern uh, with a choir of the fire when I was in my early twenties, which is where I first heard of Michael Gunger. Mm. Um, and then fast forward, went through a number of different ministry, prophetic revival ministry movements um, and wound up at, at Bethel music and got signed to a record deal. And we launched the Bethel music label. I was the first artist signed to that label. And so I was a worship leader. I was known as the worship leader. And when I began to deconstruct my faith, and for me, I think what that looked like, I had gone through many deconstructions in my life, but as a worship leader traveling the world, I find it difficult to have the experiences that you have while traveling the world and not weigh cosmic questions. Hmm. Whether it's questions about climate change or it's questions about people outside of your faith, right? Because especially when your faith as a charismatic person is predicated on this notion of revival and everyone's going to come to Jesus and get saved. And then you're actually traveling the world and meeting people who know Jesus or don't know Jesus. And you start to just recognize the humanity and dignity in everyone. Uh, That really forced a reckoning with my theology. What do Mm. I think about the other? What do I think about those people? And so 
my deconstruction really centered around who am I, how do I relate to the world? And I think it's bigger than my charismatic experiences mm-hmm. telling me and my theology that's given to me in that. Mm-hmm. So um, after I left my record label, I really was struggling with the idea of should I continue music? Because when you've toured the world and you've performed in front of arenas and 20,000 plus people at a mm-hmm. time, like I've done big festivals, I've done, I've been in arena, I've been to Asia, I've been to South Africa, I've been to Australia a bunch. You know, when you have that experience, you don't usually get a second shot at that. So I was really deciding whether I should continue to do music. And uh, the idea of me being a worship leader just didn't feel like the right path forward. I just didn't have a passion anymore for worship music. But I'd always known at my core, I was an artist and I cared about people. Mm -hmm. And for me, it wasn't even enough to be an artist. I could have easily just said, well, I'm going to be an artist and I'm just going to focus on myself. And there was something actually about that that felt really empty in vain early on as I was thinking about becoming solely just a recording artist, not a worship leader. I'm a recording artist. I'm a songwriter. I'm an artist. There's something in my ministry experience that I loved, which was movement and care for people and care for justice. And so for me, the artist and the advocacy thing was me trying to hold in both of my hands two realities that have always defined my life, my love of art and music and culture and my love for people and and love is what justice looks like in public, Cornel mm. West says, mm. you know? So how do I, so when I thought about it, artist and advocacy or artist and advocate became kind of like two pillars. Like if I was to root my life on anything, it became that. But when I go back in the course of my life, that was given to me from my family. Mm. My grandfather was a minister. My dad was a minister. I grew up in the church. I saw the marrying of music, community, and justice. Like whether it was feeding people, um, the homeless out of our church and soup kitchens, or my mother offering uh, or writing grants and getting uh, major money to um, offer free camp for low-income families Mm. in Raleigh, North Carolina. I mean, where she was running a camp of over 500 kids, low-income kids in Raleigh. And I mean, director, grant writer, like, I, my parents married their love of Jesus with their love for people in very tangible ways and gave personally the compassionate service was part of it. But also my family had a real strong advocacy bent, which there's a difference. And I don't think people understand the difference between compassionate service and advocacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Compassionate service fixes a need, um, which is, so let's use you for an example, Science Mike. Uh, You had medical bills that were stacking up. And so people rallied in compassionate service to say, let's fix this one individual problem. We have the power to do that. So let's do that. Beautiful, powerful. But like I said earlier, we live in a system that puts so much debt on you (laughs) for having medical bills. And that that's an advocacy issue. That's an Mm -hmm. institutional issue. Mm -hmm. And so, so for me, I love the bent towards or compassionate service. We need more of that. Absolutely. But what will fix a lot of the problems that we face in our society will be a focus on advocacy. How do we foundationally, structurally change institutions and systems to benefit the most amount of people and Mm. also to end any type of disparities that exist through gender, race, uh, class, sexual orientation. So for me, it wasn't simply about me being somebody that was going to be a given to compassionate service, which is powerful. But for me, it's like, I want to attack 
advocacy because we don't talk enough about collective responsibility. And I feel like that's the hardest one often for us to really understand and get behind. So for me, I felt like I watched the marrying of compassionate service on the ground, soup kitchen married with how can we create political policies to uh, benefit the poor in our city? Like I felt like I watched my family do that. Mm. So that's to me what artist advocate or artistry and advocacy means as two, um, two things I'm constantly wrestling in between. And sometimes I feel a little bit more art bent <laughs> and then sometimes I get a little bit more advocacy bent yeah. and it's, I feel like it's a, it's a tension and a wrestle that I'm always, um, holding in both hands, both things. When did you fall in love with music? I would say my mother helped me fall in love with music. My mother was a choir director. Hmm. And so I grew up watching my mother lead the choir, Thursday night choir rehearsals. Those were like, and then we play with the other kids. <laughs> and uh, I fell in love with music doing, I was in the children's choir, y'all. We were in teenage choir, mass choir. <laughs> There's so many different choirs in the black church. Uh, and that's where I fell in love with music was my mother helped me um, use music to express myself. And then I also took marching band and concert band in middle school and high school. I played the alto sax. And so I just fell in love with classical music and all the um, composers, you know, all the, the old dead white composers that we all learn, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I took my, my love of music from the black church, got expanded through um, classical music. And so, and I began, even in my teenage years, discovering, I, I, I was the guy that was buying music from any genre. I was listening to pop music. I was listening to rock. I was listening to punk rock. I was listening to metal. I was listening to, I was listening to so much different music by my teenage years. R&B and hip hop, of course, were flourishing in the nineties that, uh, yeah, my love of music was always central to my personal expression. Hmm. This has nothing to do with what you said. Okay. We'll just come back to what you had to say because we got to keep the lights on for a second for Ask Science Mike. <laughs> uh, although I get pretty excited about it because I'm lucky that when we have sponsors on Ask Science Mike, it's always stuff I've actually used and believe in. And the sponsor for this episode is a company called KiwiCo. And uh, if you haven't heard of KiwiCo, they are a company that creates these handcrafted kind of learning kits called a crate that your children get in the mail every month. They're themed around science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. They have multiple crates that are age appropriate for children of all ages into their teen years. And as kids get older and more advanced, you can choose between different tracks, between a more math and science focus or a more art focus. It's a really incredible product. I got home from the first two stops of tabs and wafers. And there was a robot walking across our kitchen table, which was really, really cool, that Macy had built. And then I got home from our second stop uh, of tabs and wafers and, uh, you know, walked in and, and there was a planetarium on in Macy's rooms and she was looking at the stars inside. The amazing thing was she had built and understood those things, started with a plan and then customized them herself by understanding the underlying scientific and engineering principles. KiwiCo is amazing. It makes learning fun. It gets kids away from the screen and uh, lets them really learn in a way that is not just fun, but also strengthens their core understanding that improves their performance in school, yes, but also in life. I can't recommend it enough. 
And KiwiCo will give you a crate absolutely free just for being a listener of Ask Science Mike. Just go to KiwiCo.com slash science to learn more and sign up for your completely free crate from KiwiCo. I want a crate. <laughs> They're awesome. I can give you one. They ship them to me all the time. I, I, thank you. They always ship them to me. And what they don't realize is I actually signed up and paid for it myself. <laughs> so then we just get like extra crates. So absolutely. They, I get jealous of the kids. They look so fun. Oh. Um, I guess I could sign up for like a grown up. Just get my own Kiwi crates. Mm. Uh, okay. So back to the show. Um. You said advocacy and compassionate care, compassionate intention. What was the word you used? I use service, but yeah, compassionate same thing. service. No, it's really good. There's a there's a stark difference. We we convince people that they are doing advocacy when in fact they're mostly doing compassionate service. And I think the mislabeling and the misunderstanding of what advocacy actually is will help us really deal with some deep systemic issues that are going on in our particularly in America and our culture or well, mm. any culture in general. Mm. Um, how do we be advocates for the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed? Um, how do we become better? And no matter what social location you identify, I think that's the question we're asking who are the most marginalized um, and to what ratio and scale? And then how do we fix systems of power to begin to address those things? Yeah. Um, because it takes institutions to um, and, and people that coalesce or in groups, I would call that an institution too, like even relational institutions. Um, how do we fix social problems it, and fix institutions? It takes that type of, that type of collective organizing, mobilizing and energy. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm more interested in as a artist is how do I use art to communicate ideas that will help mobilize us towards collective wholeness, health, well-being, goodness. And that to me is very much informed for my Christian faith. Hmm. Something people that listen to the Liturgist podcast may not know about you, and that I only know about you from watching you, I've never heard you talk about this, Ooh. is your training in the arts and advocacy began in the black church. Yes. And then your public work grew and blossomed primarily in the white church. Yes. Your advocacy bloomed in faith-based advocacy organizations and non-religious advocacy organizations. So you have this fascinating thing for me where you are native and fluent to the black church, so immersed in the white church that you understand the culture and you understand the norms and you understand the problems with the white church. You've done advocacy, including around the world and at the U.S. Capitol with faith-based institutions, and you've done the same with advocacy organizations that are not faith-based. That gives you a really, really unique perspective to have been so deeply involved in... Those worlds don't usually, like, <laughs> mix, right? No, that's what makes me a threat, Mike. <laughs> this is why yes, some people are out to get me. But that's my, that's my point. That's what I want. I would love it if you just take a second okay. and talk about what you think those four groups could learn from each other because they're all doing work, mm. but they're all, you know, like the white church can be very afraid of advocacy. It's a little more comfortable with compassionate service 
Like, well, the white church can be comfortable like advocating bad things. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, rolled, I rolled my eyes when he said it because I was like... Mm. I was being advocacy <laughs> towards the goal of good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The white church lately, frankly, for me growing up in the evangelical church, which used to be wildly nonpartisan, it's actually terrified me how fast they've become entrenched in Republican advocacy, basically. Hmm. But what... With that out on the table and not out of bounds, you know me, God, I'm not afraid of a tough conversation, but what, what learnings could those groups have from each other? Cause you're in them all, you understand them all. I understand people are out to get you. It is because you are a real threat. Um, you really are, you have an incredible capacity to open people's eyes to things and to get people to listen and to drive them to action. So, mm. wow. And he just drew four quadrants in his, <laughs> on his paper. He's like, now list them out right now. Wow, thank you for saying that. I, I don't think very many people have seen that circular transition, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, my experience in the black church is one of beauty, of mm. safety, mm. of embodiment Hmm. of music and celebration of each other and the gifts God has put inside of us unashamedly. Um, It is powerful, deep resistance to anything that tries to define your identity, especially anything that is causing harm in the mainstream society or white supremacy. Hmm deep, deep, deep resistance. Um, it is insular. It is very for itself, Hmm. which is, I believe healthy and in the society that we live in for the black church to be that way. It has been a refuge and a safety from racial terror and threat. Um, and a place where black people can be respected and give honor and dignity to each other. Hmm. That is, that is what the black church has. Hmm. If the black church can learn anything from the white church, I think it is, well, let me, let me start. Let me go to the white church. Yeah. I was about to say, that's probably easier. (laughs) I'm sorry. Listen, I know a lot of you, most of you listening are white. I'm white too. I don't think there's anything wrong that we were born white, but I do think us holding on to our whiteness causes great, great ill in society. You may not agree with me. And if, if you feel a tightness in your chest or your body, as we talk about whiteness in the white church, I would just ask you to pay attention to that tightness and look for where it comes from while we continue this conversation. I'm glad you gave that PSA because I would never do that. Um, <laughs> I was going to actually say something very positive. Um, oh, wow. I think the white church has a capacity to mobilize and organize like I've never seen. Hmm. I think they're very invested in their interests and how those interests deserve to be played out in the public square. Hmm. I think that's actually a good instinct. I think um, American Christianity knows that influence is real and they also know how to use media platforms to convey their message. Wow. Um, they're very intentional about empowering youth in order to do so to the point of actually giving money and, and leveraging lots of money to believe in youth. Now, granted, you could argue uh, a lot of that wealth is generational through 
the, the labor of black and brown people. And that, that would be a, a proper critique. Um, but regardless what they have, what they do have, they are able to leverage for the sake of their message to mobilize people, to get the word out and to create alternative institutions. The white church in this country has created its own insular bubble um, and has created its own alternative community. And what they have done is they have now made their alternative community. They have given it now real political power. Mm -hmm. And I, if all things being equal and they're not, but if I were to say all things were equal, I would say that's kind of badass, truthfully. Mm -hmm. um, if it weren't for the incredible cost to people outside of that bubble. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why it's not actually equated. Right. <laughs> and it, and so in one sense, I can like praise how badass of a move that is. And I can also go, and yet, what did you leverage it for? Hmm. Who did you leverage wow. it for? Wow. And that's the deep pain and the deep uh, anger and the brokenness uh, in the current uh, situation. Also, okay, so let's move forward and then I'll, t I'll tell you how they can relate. Um, I've done work, like you said, with faith-based advo advocacy groups. I've done it with... Uh, uh, a group formerly known as Micah Challenge, um, I've done, um, which is now kind of more morphed into Tier Fund. I've done work with Tier Fund. I've also, which is more known globally, I've done work as well with uh, more secular organizations like Color of Change um, and a, f a few other different groups, uh, Purpose and, and some others. And one of the things I think I find in the world is a what I call the world. Cause I grew up in the church. You could say that. <laughs> I said the world, you know, those people in the world. Cause you know, we're different. We're the saved, sanctified, redeemed, Holy ghost filled, baptized in water and fire. Oh man. Um, <laughs> one of the things I find with non-religious based organizations is I do find like a sense of fair, like a desire for a sense of fairness and equity. And also like a real humility to know that, they're part of something greater, believe this or not. Like I actually feel like the organizations that I've worked for that are non-religious carry a type of humility about them. And they understand that, that society is separated in different groups that they're not naturally ingrained in. Mm. Like, I think people in the world have a great respect for institutions of, like the church. Actually, they're not, they're not antagonistic intentionally like, towards them. I've found, um, I think they just have a common purpose, right? Around whatever their advocacy campaign is, whether it's climate change or, or ending racial justice. If they're, even if they're not using a faith lens to it, they are looking for the common good of all people. Hmm. I really believe that. Hmm. Um, so now going to how all those interrelate, I think if the black church had one thing to learn from the white church, it would be mobilize and organize for your own political purposes and gain. And we yeah. do it, but yeah. we, we don't, the black church doesn't do it to the level that it could. I think the black church has been more co-opted, unfortunately, mm. uh, by the prosperity gospel and by mm. a sense of hyper individualized personal wealth and attainment. Be, but that's very appealing. If you're coming from a marginalized group that this notion that God wants to make you a millionaire <laughs> or that like, you know, and, or to believe in that kind of like, divine magic, so to speak, that, you know, with some prayer and some faith, you can, you can become wealthy. Um, and the white church has engaged in that too, very much so. Um, but in the black church, I feel like it definitely, there is a stronghold there. Um, and cause if the prosperity gospel would have worked, my parents would be millionaires by now Yeah, <laughs> and right. they're not. So there has to be an ownership. I think the older black generation has to own with that. Even in the white church, the prosperity gospel is far more resonant with the economically disenfranchised. Oh yeah say it is with churches that have more historic wealth yeah and the churches that do know that they're run by the wealthy people in their congregation hmm. <laughs> they know the oil tycoon you know in texas 
really speaks into not just like building policy with their local church and what to build and how big the sanctuary they're speaking into theology, right? They're having like discussions back in closed doors. And that was one thing I noticed in the white church was there was, there's almost this, like there is this worship of wealth um, and influence and wanting it for, you know, the message of the gospel. But I often think they co-opt themselves to the political purposes of the Republican party mm. um, solely and, and the, the political interests of corporations and big mm-hmm. business and, and people, because I think they want to attain that kind of wealth too. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's one thing I think the white church can learn from the black church, it is not only physical embodiment in, 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 everything you do, not just music and worship and praise, but also a sense of connectivity of heart, mind and, and gut. Wow. Um, I think that is something that black people intrinsically have that I think white people can really learn from. Um, and I don't even like to use the term white people, uh, because who's white? I don't even understand that. But, um, so I, I would say that, and then I think both the black church and the white church can learn from the world <laughs> to recognize they are simply a insular bubble, a part of a greater bubble. Wow. And they are a part, they are a vital part. I would say all of it is vital. Um, and if I were to use Roar language, Richard Roar, everything belongs, like it all belongs. Uh, the question is, how does your belonging interact with other people's belonging? And I, I think how do, and you don't get to that answer until you actually sit with those people, have radical hospitality, love on those people and let your bubble wrestle up against their bubble. And, hmm. and that, something in you begins to change because if you're pro-life and not having conversations with pro-choice people, then how do you ever really understand how someone can be deeply committed to morality, the same like you, but also be pro-choice. You'll never really understand that. You'll just label them as baby killers. Um, And also for, for, for the black church, if you don't get out of your bubble to interact and, and I'll make this qualification. Uh, Black people have a lot of racial trauma connected to their relationships with white people. So there is, there is a lot of things there that, that are legitimate, a lot of legitimate rage and anger um, and prejudice. That is very legitimate. Um, But at the same time, it is good for black people not to simply live in an all black world and to only have black friends and to be in situations where now maybe in their work scenario, they have to do that, but to actually build relationship, deep, meaningful, vulnerable relationships with people of the opposite uh, race from you. I think it's just healthy for any human being, mm-hmm. regardless of the racial trauma and tr- terror. And I'm not sidelining it. I'm actually saying in the face of that, I think it's really badass to cross racial lines and actually learn to love people different from you. Even people that have maybe been complicit in your uh, oppression. Mm. Again, not demanding it. <laughs> I won't do that. Uh, to black people to do that because they get to choose for themselves and I understand when people don't so yeah and I think the world needs to learn that uh, you can't divorce reality from metaphor particularly religious metaphor I think it matters and it works and there's something about that type of storytelling in the church that the world really could I think Hollywood gets it but I don't think the world does right in terms of how to, yeah, they're, they distance from religion in order to be seem objective and fair. But actually, I think you need to use religion in order to see the world rightly. Man, that was a lot. I feel like I just had a long run on sentence. <laughs> well, just so we're clear, the entire purpose of this recording is to have you speak and for people to hear your thoughts. <laughs> 
Um, you know this. You get tired of your own voice, though, sometimes. I do get very <laughs> tired of my own voice. So I understand it. But that was all beautiful and necessary. You know, I was, as you were talking, I was kind of reflecting on, on how I felt in response to what you were saying. And um, gosh, this notion of the racial trauma that people of color and especially black people experience and the way that shows up, even in like how you choose your friends and who you spend time with. Um, I've been on a, a progression of attempting to increase my awareness and sensitivity to issues of race and racism in America and around the world for several years now. Yeah. And I'm just the last year or so getting to the point where sometimes I can hear and wince at things white people say to black friends <laughs> and don't think about it and aren't aware of the trauma that it invokes or yeah. brings out. Um, can I can I make a correction to something that I just said? I realized Anytime. I realized I made an overemphasis on uh, black people becoming friends with white people when statistically speaking, the real problem is the reverse. Um, it's more it's more important for <laughs> it's more problematic that white people don't have black friends. Yes. Um, or substantial deep relationships. But the last poll I saw was in 2016, I think through PPRI or uh, Barna that said that at least with white evangelicals, 75% of them had, did not have a significant relationship with a person of color completely. Yeah. Where I, you see it is far more common for black people to have more multicultural friends. So mm -hmm. I just want to correct myself by saying, me saying that was not to make that to be the problem or the, the root of issues of racism in this country. I was simply encouraging the few black people that are resistant to relationships with people outside of their own race, that it's okay to get outside of your, your own race and to have those conversations. But by and large, the problem is actually the reverse. William, I love the combination of wisdom and sensitivity you have. Oh, thanks. Like to think in the moment. It's difficult talking in a microphone all the time. We, I mean, if you think about how often yeah. we have to share thoughts, it's easy to say things sometimes unintentionally with great intentions that hurt people. But the maturity I see for you to immediately say, wait, I recognize that. I saw some impact and to own it. Yeah. Gosh, that's laudable. Thank you. I wish more people would do it. A, a lot of fights and debates and being proven wrong <laughs> have uh, helped form that humility. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also like me throwing myself in situations other where I've had to learn. Mm -hmm. I've had to always be the constant student, whether it's me being um, like when even I was I am black and I'm being in a black church. I didn't fully feel like I fit in, in the black church. And then I went to the white church and I didn't fully feel like I fit in there. I've never really fully fit in my whole life to any grouping that I've ever been in or felt like that total sense of, uh, 100% complete safety. I don't, and maybe no one has maybe people to greater degrees. So for me, I've always thrown myself in very opposite polar environments. Mm -hmm to learn to push something different out of myself. And so all the environments that I've been in, whether it's secular environments, Christian environments, black, white, whatever, um, I've always had to learn how to find common ground and also learn to be critiqued and mm. learn to like take feedback and to say, hey, no, you're thinking wrong about that. Mm. And to say, well, tell me how. And really have my ideas rub up against other people's ideas. And I'll always say yes to an idea that I've never heard of first before I say no. Hmm. That's my general disposition. Unless I've already thought through that extensively, then I'll say, hell no. But if you're telling me something I've never heard before, I'll go, huh, tell me more. Hmm. Really? Huh, that's interesting. I'm struggling. Here's why I'm struggling. But yeah, tell me more. 
So no matter what scenario I've been in, that's always what I've done. So that's, I don't know. So I, as I was hearing myself and thinking of what I just said, I, rem- I was like, you know what? That's not accurate. And that doesn't, I don't think the data supports it. But also, I think I was placing too much onus in the weight of my conversation, which matters. The context is part of the message. Yeah. Because there are going to be people that would walk away from what I just said and felt like I was like telling black people to get their shit together <laughs> in a, without pointing out the real problem that's actually happening, which is white people not having significant relationships with black people. Um, it's not an equal weighted issue by, by and large. Yeah. And white people, if you think you chose that, <laughs> mm. this is why we talk about systemic and personal racism. Yeah. Like the structure of society uh, is in many ways architected to keep white communities insular. Yeah, land land is very racialized, yeah. especially in our country. It is you cannot explore. There's there are people like political scientists who've done work to determine based on the soil of the land you live in will determine how you vote. Mm. Like Chris Hayes on his podcast had had these two political scientists uh, and geologists come through and talk about it. Like soil is connected to policy and connected land is connected to people and connected to groups of people and how they move and migrations. And I mean, you know more about this literally than I do. That's why your name is Science Mike. So I feel like I'm preaching to the choir and probably not doing it as great of a job as you would. But um, I do think one of the products of our white supremacist society or the after effects of colonialism are that we've been reduced to products and we've been reduced to consumers. And when you're reduced in that type of capitalistic structure, it's easy to uh, create classes structures and to move people around and to, you know, that's the whole thing with gentrification, which some would argue, right, it's natural, that it's a natural progression. But I think in this country, it is very intentional to, to move out those people, get these people because they're of higher stock, higher value. And uh, I think as a person of faith, the gospel is so radical to call these this shit out. And I, I don't think we have contextualized faith in a way that really describes public policy in the here and now. And I think that's what I'm really interested in and passionate about is helping people make the connection between the message of Jesus and radical inclusion, love and, and, and breaking of the hierarchies and the class structures and the race structures to say, you are loved, you are present, you have human dignity and worth and value and you're of the divine. And to say, all right, now that that's true, how do, the, how do we then organize society? How, mm. do we, how do we take care of the land and take care of the poor and, and heal the planet and really begin to um, cultivate wholeness and health and wellness for um, all people, not just some people? So you're saying that, and I literally hear tracks from Cosmos in my head. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's Like yeah. how much did this mix of your different life experiences and the different places that you've committed advocacy influence and shape how cosmos came to be. So the word cosmos is representative of our cosmos. Cosmos can be like my body is its own cosmos, meaning it's Mm -hmm. its own ecosystem. Mm -hmm. My social relationships are a cosmos. My city is a type of cosmos. My country is a cosmos. My planet is a cosmos. And so me touring the world and, and just, and I know a lot of people that tour the world and they're still like exclusionist, right? Mm. Or bigots or racist or mm. sexist. Um, I toured the world with my heart open. I toured the world wanting to learn. I toured the world 
wanting to see not just the physical planet, but also see the many different, the, the 7 billion different ways we're all human. And, and also the 7 billion ways we're, we're, we all have commonality, both and. And so Cosmos for me was about pushing my spirituality, the record, he's talking about the, the album I just came out with. Um, Cosmos was about pushing my spirituality past the limitations that the Christian faith placed on me. And I started asking cosmic questions about myself and about my relationship to the world. Also questions about our relationship um, as Americans in particular in the black and white issue and, and our Latinx people. Like what is our, and the natives, like our, what is our collective cosmos? And I wanted to wrestle with it as best as I could in a 48 minute spiritual pop album format <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just describe the interior journey of the heart, the interior cosmos representing the external cosmos. Mm. And that's kind of existentially what that uh, album is about. To some people it comes across as like a blatantly blatant attempt to do corporate worship and pop music at the same time. Uh, for me, it very much was my attempt to blend all the worlds that I was a part of mm. um, in this weird pot and that's what came out was cosmos what has surprised you about the reception to the record the which is to be expected the many different types of people that vibe with the record hmm. you have people who are like i don't identify as christian anymore but that record just does something to my heart hmm. the people that are still very much christian and goes that that brings language to my spiritual journey hmm. and my own doubts and questions um i think that just the response of people um, like somebody told me that I kind of had a little bit of an anxiety attack last night and somebody, I was like, wrote on Twitter, like, Hey guys, can you just pray for me or whatever? And somebody said on the track, I have a rec, <laughs> a voicemail of my mom speaking to me. Hmm. Uh, like I was having an anxiety attack two years ago and I was supposed to get on a plane to come to a funeral. A family member had died and my anxiety attack was so strong. I didn't get on the plane. I just couldn't make it. And so she left me this voicemail, basically encouraging me, which is what my mom always does, even when I don't want it. Uh, and so I actually went back last night and listened to maybe there's four tracks in a row in Cosmos that kind of tell that arc of the story. And I went back and listened to them and it actually like settled and brought peace to me, which is funny to listen to your own art and to, uh, I was able to receive from it, almost detached from the making of it and just allow my mother's voice to speak to me and the heart of what the songs like in the gray and light the way home and cosmos mm. like those songs that progression leading me out of like my isolation and into the like awe and wonder and beauty of everything mm. and that's yeah my own music did that for me last night so that that was kind of wild um to experience what people have been messaging and emailing me about mm. and so as so often happens with a record now you're planning a tour I'm crazy. Three months? Two months. Two months. Still two crazy. months? Two months, man. 35 shows, two months. It's crazy. It's like four to five shows a week. I'm absolutely out of my mind. Listen, Science we're month. planning three shows in a row in Texas, and I think I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to die from that. The most I've done on that has been two weeks. I've never done, but I've done two weeks back to back like that. Yeah. This will be, I did it. Yeah, this will be two months. I'm literally, so for me, I feel like I'm just, it's time to reintroduce myself and, and I guess my message. Where all are you going? You know, everywhere I'm, I, I'm going to everywhere I've ever been. 
I'm going, I'm starting in LA, going to Phoenix, El Paso, Austin, Dallas, Atlanta, New Orleans, Orlando, Raleigh, Charlotte, Nashville, St. Louis, Kansas City, Denver, Chicago, Minneapolis, New York City, Toronto, London, UK. Like I'm going everywhere and some other cities we didn't even name. So if you didn't hear your city, we're probably coming. Um, I've, I've toured all those cities in the past as yeah. a worship leader. Yeah. And now I feel like it's time to reintroduce myself and, and the things that I've learned um, through the album. But also we're going to have a time of Q&A as well, too. So I'll play some tr- tracks from the record. I have a cool visual I've created to go along with it. And uh, I mean, I'm going to sing, perform to the record. And then we're going to do some Q&A around spirituality and justice. But I, I really feel like it's time to take kind of the cosmos message in a time where like there's so much fear and exclusion. I think it's time for us to begin to declare loudly the inclusive love of God, mm-hmm. the universal love of God to mm-hmm. all people, not just to Christians or those who claim to believe. And um, I, I feel very passionate about that. It's not a crusade or anything as much as it is like I feel a prophetic urgency of like, all right, it's time to talk about spiritual deconstruction into reconstruction and give that language and put it out there and, and just go hug people and, and cry with them and hear their stories and drink wine with them. And uh, yeah, which wow. is, that's all I kind of want to do. So I just want to go on a two month tour. When's it start? August 29th and it goes to October 29th. Um, okay. We're going to end in San Francisco. I'm going to Seattle, Portland, Sacramento as well. Hit the West Coast on the tail end. And yep. End in my favorite state in the planet. <laughs> Calif- California. It's a good place, isn't it? California. California. Here we come. I've been in this state 10 years. Wow. And over 10 years. And I love this state. I'm yeah. here for this state. Me too. Although just the two years for me so far. Mm. But I can't wait to get to my 10-year California. You will. You will. We, we, I remember when you were just visiting, we were encouraging you to move here. Uh, I think that's really powerful that you are here and that you've experienced such radical openness and grace and love and family mm. in California than where you were at in Florida. It kind of messes you up. You get to hear. Because like what you don't realize living other places is how much like passive social pressures influence what you talk about and don't talk about and what you explore in yourself and what you don't. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a place that is like, Hey, you do you. Yep. And then you're like, but wait, who yeah. am I? <laughs> yeah. Very much. Our, I would, I mean, every place has a social order. California definitely has one. We're not perfect out here, but Gosh, man, no. it is far more open, far more fluid, far more you can be people don't hate on you for being christian in california like that's not actually a thing um people don't like like exclusion but they don't like you say you're a christian people like that's awesome tell me more about it (laughs) like there's this idea that the rest of the country has about california to me that's just not truthful and that is why i on science mike want to make a very big announce announcement Uh oh here we go i literally don't know what this is by the way (laughs) I, William Matthews, am formally endorsing Kamala Harris for president of the United States. That's right, everyone. I am making a formal endorsement of our California senator. She was our attorney general and she was a a DA for San Francisco. She is a hometown girl. She grew up in Oakland. She grew up in the same denomination I did, Church of God in Oakland. And she will be, she 
she, she, she will be our next president. I would love to offer some meaningful debate or pushback for the audience, but uh, pretty much since her announcement, I've been Team Kamala. I got like tempted by Warren briefly. I love Warren. I love Warren. But I don't know. After I saw that debate, (laughs) I was, I was. But hadn't I been telling y'all? I think, I think Warren's brilliant. She is. Absolutely. I think she's electable. Don't hear me wrong. She's very electable. But I I think when I imagine who I want to have that nuclear football, it's Kamala. Yeah. When I think about like who do I want to deal with a Repub- with a potentially combative Republican Senate, it's Kamala. Yeah. Like uh, also, it's Kamala. It's like comma c o c o m m a. Think of it like that. I have a learning disability. That's, That's right. why I mispronounce things. So I hear you saying it's not Kamala. <laughs> it's Kamala. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going. What am I saying? <laughs> there's a there's some sound that my brain will process it's true for, i literally it's a an auditory processing deficiency um and when you guys like i'm on stage and you shout out the correct pronunciation all i hear you saying is what i just said <laughs> yeah i get that so i was i was more doing but hold on you the, said comma yeah la. as in a comma comma la comma la yeah, because I believe Kamala, she's... Kamala? Kamala. I'm saying that correctly now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kamala? Kamala? Yep. Kamala? Kamala? Kamala. I got Kamala? President of the United States. I'm practicing. Kamala? <laughs> President Kamala Harris. Kamala. Okay, I can do that. I, yeah. I can't hear the difference without the... But I can say comma. So for me, it was, it was about an ethnic thing because she, she is uh, half black and half... Uh, I believe she's Tamil uh, uh, Indian. Yeah. So yeah. So they pronounce it uh, like Kamala. Yeah, sure. Um, so that that's what it was. But yeah, you do have a learning disability. So <laughs> no, no, no heat, no shade, no judgment. It's half um, black, half Indian, a hundred percent badass. A hundred percent, as Lizzo would say, that bitch. Um, and no. if you're if you're not, you know, I know people get inflamed over politics. William and I basically we have a text thread with some friends that he and I regularly take over with political chatter, and everyone yeah, else stops talking except it. for like. Cause they're just not a friend, Jesse. <laughs> yeah. She'll stick around. And she's on team Liz, <laughs> which I love. I'm here for Liz and her policies and her plans. Um, I just know that whoever the next president is going to be. Um, and I do believe it's Kamala. They need to be able to prosecute the case against the corruption of the current moment that we're living in. Mm-hmm. And who better than a former prosecutor who, who really can, can laser in on the thing that, that, uh, no one's talking about. And she has a unique ability. You've seen it on the Senate Judiciary, probably with her uh, skewering A.G. Barr and Jeff Sessions and God knows who else. She she has an ability to get things to their root. And so I love the idea about a black female prosecutor who is also she was an attorney general. She is a law and order candidate, but law and order that's just and compassionate and works for everyone. I think that's important moving forward. Um, you can keep all your like wishy liberal uh hippie stuff. I don't really care about that. I want someone that's going to protect the dignity of all people. And I have got I have caught some heat already for my Kamala support. Yeah, I bet. From uh from some advocates. Yeah, of course. And they they will no no candidate is super concerned with her. Yeah, they they should be more concerned about who's in the White House than uh right now than who's trying to get there. Um mm. but 
um, at the end of the day, no president obviously is going to represent anyone's views perfectly or anyone. No record is perfect, right? Like half the people that are critiquing couldn't run for a public office if they wanted to because their sex tapes would get out. That's so there was me. that. I don't have a sex tape, <laughs> but I couldn't run for public office. Right. Or the people they bribed would get out. So let's let's be very clear. And I'm not saying that to squash and crit- fair critiques, but there's a difference between a fair critique and a uh, people. Yeah. You're still trying to learn her name. <laughs> I'm trying to hear the difference. Cam, com. This is not good radio, but I know you all love me if you listen to Science Mike. Camera. Cam. Allah. Kamala. Kamala. You are helping. Kama. Camera. That's it. That's the amount of work it takes me to change the pronunciation. That's fair. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> there are a lot of people that are mispronouncing her name out there, so you're doing them a service right now. You should know her. Even if you don't want to vote for her, you should definitely know who she is and watch out for her because our California senator is making waves, and she is she is up in the polls neck and neck with Joe Biden now. So I love it. There I, you go. And for, for Team Blue, because I, I, do, I, I do identify as a Democrat in as much as I identify with the political party, I am definitely an anybody but Biden guy. <laughs> like, yeah. if I were to rank the candidates, Biden dead last for me. Yeah, NYT just did a big podcast, their daily podcast, about his record on uh, busing and segregation today. Like, they really brought some some nuance and some truth there. Uh, and and they, and they tried. Right. They they did very fair. I thought they critiqued him where he needed to be critiqued, and also gave him benefit of the doubt where he deserved it. Um, and it is a lot very nuanced, but her critique on him was right about the busing issue. And she wouldn't have said it if it wasn't. Oh, exactly. Because she's a prosecutor. <laughs> she is trained to discern truth and to to understand. Also, she is trained to understand people's weaknesses and she knows how to exploit it. And that's actually what you want on a debate stage next to Donald Trump. Uh, that You stole the words out of my brain, not even out of my mouth because they're not in my mouth yet. But when I imagine who from all those 20 people. Yep could get on a stage with Trump, weather his attacks, and then meaningfully push back. Yep. It's her. It's her. It really, it's always been her. I mean. Because he got under Hillary's skin. Yeah. In the debates. Yeah. When when you're bringing uh, uh, your husband's accused uh, rape victims to the debates, uh, that would get under anyone's skin. Yeah, right. Which is what he did, if y'all right. don't know. Like, and I wasn't so, digging at Hillary. There's a hundred percent chance. I would have an aneurysm on and die on stage with Donald Trump. I would become <laughs> so frustrated that I would literally just die. But my point is you need someone who is uncommonly unflusterable. You know, you know, and how as you, I watched her going to Biden. Yeah. Without. Destroying him. No, she didn't destroy him. She just politically shivved him. <laughs> Like, which is right. She was so laser focused in her attack on him. And it was, I, attack is just, I, it's strong language. I know. I hate when we do talk about politics and blood sport language. <laughs> I do. It's, it's not actually helpful. It is, it is actually uh, wrong. But from a political perspective, what she did was, was truthful. It was powerful and it was calculated. And none of those things are wrong because she, she weaponized her identity in the right way because it was true. I got to interrupt you. Because I've done you a disservice. What? I let us get onto politics and lose 5,000 listeners. It's fair. 
So before we keep going, do you want to tell people where they can learn more about the tour? <laughs> While some of them might still be here. Yeah. Oh God. They probably left. They probably left us when you were doing Kamala, Ka- Ka- Camarera, Ka- Kama. They were like, uh, this podcast went south really quick. That's true. Yeah. You can uh, you can find me at williammatthewsmusic.com. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter. Just Google or you know William Matthews. Also, mm. all my socials are on my website too. Um, also, I have a YouTube channel, and I'm releasing music videos. And yeah, I'm just trying to create quality art that matters to me and also matters to the world. So, all the support, likely, as well as you can stream Cosmos um, on Apple Music and Spotify. Hit the follow button on Spotify. That does me a lot of help. I really appreciate that. Mm, um, I'll do that right now. Yeah, that's people don't know if you if you like an artist, hit the follow button, and their music will show up more in your algorithms. Um, and also, their new music will show up in playlists for you. And so uh, that's what really matters for indie artists, especially using streaming now as the main format people are consuming music. Hit the follow button on Spotify. Um, that it has me. never occurred to me to follow any artist. Well, that's how you, just so you know, if you use Spotify in general, that's how you curate a better Spotify experience, which makes you want to listen longer, is any artist that you love, big or big or small or whoever, hit the follow button. And they're... Man, alive, so, dude, you got a lot of streams. Yeah, I, bro, I have, I think if I were to combine all my streams, there's somewhere over 60 million. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's millions and millions and tens of millions. And Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense when you said earlier I was a popular person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's where you can find me. Hit me up. Find, follow me on Spotify. Yeah, that's actually more important than Instagram at this point. Okay. <laughs> Everybody listening to the sound of my voice, if you have Spotify, follow William Matthews on it. Whatever streaming service you have, you can do what I do. I make a playlist of all my friends' music. I mute my phone. I hit play and repeat every night while I sleep. Mm. (laughs) There you go. So I do like 10 to 12 hours of playing my friends' music. Oh, that's so good. That helps every night. Yeah. It helps. Yeah. So, uh, dude, thanks for slumming it on Ask Science Mike. Slumming it? This is is a Cadillac of podcasts. This is this is primo supreme. Oh man! The amazing thing about Ask Science Mike is um, about a year in, it just kind of became its thing. It doesn't really grow. It doesn't really shrink. It's just uh, loyalty. Yeah, it's just you know you and me and I don't know quarter million people this month. So loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. I like I like I like Ask Science Mike because they, um, you know, the liturgist listeners. You got to keep it like pretty shiny, pretty, yeah. pretty snappy. You got to have all your music transitions, or they just like I can't do this. <laughs> but I just like Peasants. hit record, talk, get done, hit stop. I know. I'm trying to upgrade. That's why I'm glad to be on Ask Science Mike. You guys are better listeners than our liturgist <laughs> listeners. Jesus Christ. I, I consider them the cream of the crop. They are the they are the de la de la creme. Is that what you call them? I can't speak in English, man. <laughs> the, cream, the creme de la creme. Oh, yeah. I think that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. okay. I, f- I found it. But uh, love William you guys. WilliamMatthewsMusic.com. Follow on Spotify. And you've done it. You've survived another episode of Ask Science Mike. As always, thank you, Greg Nordine, for your work in production. Andrew Galucky in pre-production. Jeb Bodiford wrote the Ask Science Mike theme song. I'm your host, Science Mike, and I can't wait to talk with you next week. See you later.